A couple weeks ago, we thought about what it meant to be the church in the world. We considered that Jesus called sinful people to be his primary means of expanding the gospel message to the world. And to be sure, he calls not only those who are sinful, but those who are being redeemed. And we will all be fighting against the problem of sin until Christ comes again and fully restores his kingdom here on earth. Romans 8.30 explains that And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So even though Jesus calls us while we are dead in our sins and our trespasses, he doesn't expect us to stay where we are. In the Great Commission, we are called to evangelize as we make disciples. We cannot make disciples if we remain in our sins. The Heidelberg Catechism explains in answer number two that I must acknowledge three things in response to the gospel. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Part of our response to the gospel is living transformed lives as both evidence of our relationship to Christ and as a way to thank him for it. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he uses metaphors of fishing and shepherding to teach the crowds. These elements were part of the lives of ordinary people, and that's what made it effective. They could identify with him. A couple weeks ago, I related many of my points to dairy farming. I did this because the farm is something that many of us know at least something about. Today, I want to use the analogy of a soldier to help bring about some of the points made in the text. We'll be reading from 1 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. This passage tells us in part how the church is called to live in the world. So please turn in your Bibles now to 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Before we read our text, let's go to God and ask that He illuminate our hearts. But in your hearts, Lord, in our hearts, we have emptiness, we have brokenness, we have confusion. And you're the author of order and not chaos. As we come to your word this morning, Lord, we ask that you break through our chaos and make order of our world. Help us to be filled with your spirit, enlightened by your word. In Christ's name, amen. Chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks of you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This is the word of the Lord. Be 
Some of you know that I am a chaplain in the Army National Guard. I've served in the Army now for over 21 years, but I have not always been a chaplain. Before I joined the Chaplain Corps, I was an ordnance officer, and before that, I was an MP, and before that, I was in the Transportation Corps. The unit I served with in 2003 participated in the U.S. invasion of Iraq in March and April of that year. And not long after the invasion, the United States firmly controlled Baghdad, Tikrit, and Mosul, the so-called Sunni Triangle. As U.S. forces gained significant geographical ground, one of their primary objectives remained unmet, and that was capturing the president of Iraq, Saddam Hussein. In December of that year, my platoon had a mission to bring some supplies from Camp Anaconda near Al-Balad to Bayop, or Baghdad International Airport. When we were preparing to leave Bayop, my platoon received a message that we couldn't leave. And that type of directive was not unusual at the time as threat levels remained in constant flux. Eventually, rumors made it down to us that Saddam had been captured. About 20 minutes after that report was given, those rumors were confirmed as we saw armed guards escorting Saddam to a holding cell. There were large cheers, as much excitement as the reality of that situation sank in. Many of us had been away from home for about a year already, and capturing Saddam was one key element in completing the overall U.S. objective. When we received deployment orders in January of 2003, the duration assignment on those orders said, plus or minus a year, unless extended or reduced. The Army gave itself a very loose timeline, leaving troops on the ground, always wondering how long they would be gone. Capturing Saddam became an important indicator that the sun may be setting on our rotation. If you didn't know, Saddam Hussein was a tyrannical leader. He was responsible for murdering thousands of his own people. As the occupational forces moved north into the country, there was a feeling of relief for the Iraqi people that the reign of terror was finally over. We witnessed dancing in the streets. The local population came out in droves to thank us, albeit reluctantly. It reminded me of the scene in Band of Brothers when the Allied forces freed the people from Holland of Nazi occupation. While the Iraqis were grateful for being liberated, many of them remembered that the U.S. failed to keep its promise of liberation back in 1993 when Allied forces remained in convoys at the border of Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and looked on as Saddam ordered the massacre of his own people that we asked them when we asked them to revolt. While the next phase of the operation, the reestablishment of the Iraqi government, proved difficult at best, the occupation of key infrastructure and the capture of Saddam Hussein was a success. When leaders talk about what makes an operation successful, training is usually identified 
as the main contributor. Leaders ask, how prepared are my people to carry out their mission? Training is so vital that it is, at its most basic level, one of only two things that the military does. The primary mission of the military is to fight and win the nation's wars. To that end, we are either fighting or training. The moment that a soldier arrives at basic training, he begins learning the fundamentals of military life. Marching, customs and courtesy, weapons training, and how military processes work together. Next, he learns all about the specific job that he will have. When he arrives at his first duty station, he begins integrating the skills into his unit. In time, he will learn more advanced skills. As soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines progress in rank, they are required to attend specific training to function at higher echelons of responsibility. And then as all of this is being done, he will encounter deployment and large-scale integrated operations, which will hone and merge together all of those skills. So why is there so much emphasis on training? The answer is simple. It's too late to train once you are in the fight. It takes time to understand communication networks. It takes time to understand how all the assigned equipment is to be used. It takes time to know the nuances of different weapon systems and vehicles and processes. It takes time to know the people that you are serving with. Accomplishing the goals of the military depends on soldiers not just knowing how things work, but being highly proficient with them. In 1 Peter 3.15, we are charged with a task similar to that of a soldier. Always be prepared. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason, to give the reason for the hope that you have. The word translated as answer is from the Greek apologian. It means to provide a defense. This is where we get the word apology and apologetics from. Don't confuse this with what some people mean when they say, I'm sorry. Apologetics is the study of defending biblical claims using logic, reason, theology, and philosophy. What Peter is saying to the Christians of his day is that they need to anticipate and expect to be challenged about their decisions to live for and to follow Christ. Do not wait until the pressure is on before you think these things through. Get prepared now so that you can stand first firm against those who challenge you. It could be that these early Christians may have had to defend themselves against oppositional authority or brutal crowds who did not want to see the established cultural norms challenged. Today, we have similar obstacles. How should Christians now approach the subjects of sexual identity, abortion, divorce, racism, sexism? Get prepared now, Peter says, because you are called to live as a light for the world. And if you 
the church are not going to be my witness, then who will? So then what does it mean to be ready? First, it means that a spiritual transformation has occurred. The fact that Peter is charging Christians means that at some point, those individuals were confronted with the decision to abandon their former ways of living and are now fully devoted followers of Christ. Second, it means discipline. Hebrews 12.11 tells us that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. What's discipline? Sometimes people use the term discipline when they want to correct bad behavior by punishment. Discipline is not punishment. Rather, it is an intentional pattern of behavior intended to produce expected, known results. Discipline can have both positive and negative aspects. Some positive or active aspects of discipline are practices. Praying at regular times throughout the day. Building quiet times into your schedule. Memorizing scripture. Attending corporate worship. Engaging in service opportunities. And meeting in small groups are all different practices, disciplines, that we can incorporate into our lives that help Christians become more spiritually prepared to face the world. For parents, since they are charged with nurturing the spiritual formation of their children, it can mean family devotions, walking through the confessions and creeds, engaging in questions of practical theology, or praying together before bed and meals. Peter is not unrealistically demanding perfection. In simple terms, Peter is saying, if you are going to call yourself a Christian, you ought to be prepared to answer why. But don't feel too bad if you're not quite there with every issue just yet. Remember, it's Peter that's making this charge. I'm sure that many of you know what Peter is famous for after Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not once, not twice, but three times, Peter denies not just knowing, not just being a follower of Jesus, but even knowing who he is. Peter's denial experience is illustrative for us. It demonstrates what can happen when a soldier goes into battle unprepared. Instead of donning the armor of God and standing firm in the faith, the person who has not taken true ownership of his or her faith will be ill-equipped to stand against the adversities and challenges when they certainly will come. Too often, teens neglect to take ownership of their faith. They graduate high school, go off to college, and then they're challenged by peers and professors and culture generally. Will they be like the unprepared Peter, who quickly forgets who he is and denies Christ? Or will they be like the prepared Peter, who has taken his faith seriously so that he can boldly defend his position? 
But students aren't the only ones who sometimes lack discipline. Where are you today? Are you aware of your own doubts? Your own questions? Have you just gone along for the ride with your faith? Or do you have a thriving relationship with Christ, built on an assurance of salvation and firm understanding of His continual work of redemption? Part of a soldier's life is being prepared to take a physical training test at any time. These tests are only required to be given once a year and before taking on any schools. Army doctrine explains that PT tests are to be used as tools by commanders to assess the physical readiness of his unit. But commanders may request a PT test at any time. So what's the implied task? To always be ready. Always be prepared. We don't know what the future is. We cannot predict when or why we will need to be ready. By incorporating these spiritual disciplines into our lives, we are preparing ourselves for whatever situation we will encounter. But building these practices into our lives and being prepared doesn't mean that we are done. Peter says that we need to defend our faith with gentleness and respect. Several years back, there was an arranged debate set up between Ken Ham, a young earth creation apologist, and Bill Nye, the science guy. This debate was set up on the assumption that each position was incompatible with the other. Either you affirmed the Bible, the Ken Ham position, or you affirmed science, the Bill Nye position. The debate was not premised on the fact that the God who made the whole world, the God of the Bible, who governs all scientific laws, is the same God. Instead, the rivals each had two objectives. One, make their opponent seem incredulous, and two, make themselves seem credible. Neither opponent approached the other with gentleness and respect. This is not what Peter had in mind. How many times has the Christian community been very quick to identify something as sin without offering any pastoral compassion for the experience of those who are affected by it? When Christ calls us to love our neighbor, he does not mean only Reformed Christians. We are to welcome the alien among us, and to love them, too. After all, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. If we are more concerned with calling out sin than loving the sinner, whatever words are spoken will have little effect in that person's life because we haven't gained the permission needed to speak into their life. We must speak, as my friend Mark Mortensen says, with love, the truth. Aristotle's thinking is helpful in considering the defense of our faith. Although he himself was not a Christian, his breakdown of persuasion and appeal is useful here. 
Aristotle conceives of three modes of persuasion. Logos, pathos, and ethos. Logos is the logical treatment of a case. Does what a person says make good sense? Pathos is the emotional appeal of the speaker. Is the level and type of emotion consistent with the presented logic and topic? Does the person offer emotional evidence that convinces you? Or do they seem disingenuous? Ethos. Ethos has to do with the character of the person. Do they profess something that their actions deny? This would be like <coughs> excuse me, an attorney who smokes cigarettes suing a tobacco company. That's not why I coughed just now, so you know. <laughs> As Christians, we must make sure that we have carefully thought through the important issues that we are facing in light of the gospel message. What principles of Scripture can we apply to the circumstances that we are facing? We cannot, however, just leave it up to our reasoning to rule the day. God has made us mind, body, and soul. Our reasoning is to be accompanied by an appropriately matched emotion. That is, not only should we be able to discern what the Scripture says with our head, we also must be able to discern it with our spirit. We need to understand how we feel. Now, I want to offer a caution here. We can never only go off what our head tells us without consulting how we feel, but neither should we go with how we feel, neglecting our reasoning. They need to work in tandem. Remember that the Spirit of God will never move us to act in a way that is contrary to the Word of God. If you believe the Spirit is calling you to do something and His Word tells us differently, there should be a big check going off. One example of this is paying taxes. Someone might say, God's telling me I should not pay my taxes. But what does Jesus say about this? He says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. The principle that is taught in Scripture needs to trump our feelings. But sometimes we can get into trouble thinking too hard, just like the Pharisees, and miss the meaning and intent of things, like the Sabbath. Worship, rest, and renewal, and delight was God's plan for the Sabbath. But it became something to just condemn people for. Were they meeting all the rules? Our ethos must also demonstrate that we are so convinced about what we believe that we will live a life that reflects it. We can't proclaim God's love while we are known for being grumpy. We cannot go after the drunkard when we have a beer in our hand. Remember that our actions must demonstrate obedience to the God that we respect and thanksgiving to the one who gave everything for us. The first part of our discussion focused on competence, the ability to articulate and defend our faith with logic. 
This is Aristotle's meeting of Logos persuasion. When Peter urges us to use gentleness and respect, it is to preserve our Christian witness so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ will be ashamed of their slander. This is essentially what Aristotle is getting at with his use of ethos. Do our actions support what we profess? Jesus provided two great examples for us. Back to the garden, when the soldier came to arrest him, he refused to argue and to fight. Instead, Jesus replied, do what you came for. The second is when he's before Pilate, and Jesus just remained silent. He allowed the testimony of his actions, his character, to be his defense. A negative practice of discipline is exercising restraint in what we see and what we do. The movies we watch, the music we listen to, the activities that we engage in, all say something about our character, our ethos. We pray that God will help us find a life of discipline and spiritual practices so that we are able to defend our faith with logic, our hearts, and our character through the power of the Holy Spirit. But remember that it's not just going to, not just up to us to do our best. What we are defending is the hope that we have. Our hope is that though we will surely fail, though we may try our best, we have another who has fully paid for all our sins and sets us free from the stain, guilt, and power of sin. Jesus offers that hope to us all freely. It is in his strength that we are able to train so that when the day of testing comes, we are able to stand firm and ready. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. Lord, everything that we have comes from you. You've given us our reasoning, our feeling, our character. We ask that you mold us together in such a way that we are found genuine and authentic. Forgive us for when we fail and to continue to pursue us. Give us the courage to love others as you have loved us. In your name we pray. Amen.